On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson these days, we're going to chat about whether or not Netflix should be taxed in Canada and what that actually means. It's back on the agenda, sort of, federal election coming up. The Liberal Party is now saying, hey, tax Netflix. What does that actually mean? It's a little more complicated than you might think. Michael Geist will join us to talk about that. Your name, in a different topic, your name, people are judging you for your name. You may not even realize this, but your name is speaking volumes about you. Just the sound of your name, the way it rolls off the tongue, depending on how your name sounds, people have already, according to a new study, made decisions about what kind of person you are, fair or not. How does that affect you? Think about your name. Do you blame your parents? And we'll move along from that one before we blame our parents too much. We're going to be chatting about people who don't bathe. No, we're not mocking them. It's a new thing. Some people are saying, I don't use soap. I don't stink. That's the catch. I don't stink. Do they? Well, we're going to talk to someone who, well, they bathe. They just never use any product. And they say, I smell fine. We'll see. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. There's been talk in, well, for years now here in Canada about taxing Netflix. You want to sell subscriptions to people in this country? You want to compete with other similar businesses, streaming companies in this country? Well, you should pay corporate tax in this country. Hasn't happened though. During the last federal election four years ago, roughly, Stephen Harper raised the idea of taxing Netflix. Justin Trudeau said, no, no, we're not going to do that. Shot it down. Trudeau won. And this idea seemed to go nowhere. There were some things that were done. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the taxing of Netflix didn't happen. Well, now an election is back on. Another federal election is going on. And somehow the topic has come back up again. Should Netflix, and I think this is broader than Netflix, by extension, should all online companies that are not based in Canada, but that sell to Canada, that cross the borders online, digitally, that operate on Canadian bandwidth, whatever, should they be paying up for the right to be able to compete in Canada? And if they don't, is this not highly punitive to Canadian companies? Michael Geist is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and is a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. He joins us now. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Oh, happy to. Thanks for having me. I, I'm puzzled by this right off the top. Uh, why do they not pay already? How, how has this even been a debate? Because it seems that every company, if you're going to work or sell or whatever in Canada or in the States or wherever, you pay tax. Right. So I think, you know, one of the real challenges with this issue is, and one of the reasons I think for a lot of the public policy confusion, is that the term Netflix tax has been taken to mean an awful lot of different things. So it'd probably be helpful to try to clarify. The question first on income tax, should you pay corporate income tax, isn't really at the heart of this particular question. And so I think there is an assumption that large multinationals should be paying their fair share, but I think a recognition that all companies try to tax minimize, and so we all know about how they set up offshore or in different jurisdictions as a way to limit the amount of corporate income taxes they pay. Uh, I don't know what Netflix pays, but I think this this would be true for just about any company. It's true in the tech sector, but it's true, frankly, for just about all large multinationals. And the idea that we ought to be more aggressive about linking income tax owed to companies that operate in the country, I think, is 
is a long-standing issue and, and isn't particularly controversial. Neither, I should note, is the issue of sales taxes. And so Netflix actually now does collect and remit sales taxes, at least in Quebec, and I believe uh, looking to do so in Saskatchewan as well. The federal government has, has indicated that they, they move forward with an, a national approach, but they are looking to ensure that there is a global standard as part of the collection of these kinds of taxes. And there's been work being done on that. I think the expectation is that eventually we'll get there and we'll see sales taxes applied to services like Netflix or other digital services as well. Where the controversy arises, and the Conservatives, as you mentioned, raised in the last election, only to be matched by the Liberals, and we see the Liberals now flipping on this, is whether or not companies like Netflix ought to be making mandated contributions to support the creation of Canadian content. Should they be required, in other words, take a percentage of their revenues, hand it over to a fund that would then go and support Canadian content? That's the Netflix so-called tax that I think has raised far more controversy. But hasn't that, isn't that already in place? Don't they already, or didn't they already make some sort of agreement that they were going to contribute $500 million or something like that to Canadian content? Well, what they agreed to, to do was to say that they would spend at least $500 million towards production okay. in Canada. Um, they already spend significantly, and in fact, if you take a look at the Canadian market, we find that foreign services are responsible for an increasing percentage of the financing behind production that takes place in Canada. So what they did was basically say, we're doing this, but if you want a firm commitment that we're going to continue to do it, and here's here we can put a number on it, we'll spend over the next five years at least $500 million on production activities in Canada. That's different from what some cultural groups want, though. They want the company to be required to take a percentage of their revenues, pay it into some fund, and then have no control over how it's spent, as it would go towards supporting the creation of Canadian content. So you mentioned a moment ago, this was a conservative position four years ago. I understand it's now the Liberal Heritage Minister who's raised this idea. You mentioned that they flip positions. Politically, what's the advantage now? To the, why are the Liberals now deciding this is now an issue they want to chase? Yeah, that's a good question. So if we go back to the last election, Stephen Harper, literally in the first week of the election campaign back in 2015, uh, put out a video saying that he liked Netflix, he liked movies and TV shows, he mentioned Breaking Bad as a show that he really liked, and he said that he would, under a conservative government, would not impose this kind of tax on Netflix, uh, and that there was concern that the opposition parties running for election would. The Liberal government, or the Liberal Party, rather, at that time, quickly said, no, we have no intention of doing this either. And they stuck by that over the course of their mandate. But over the last number of weeks, we've seen the Canadian Heritage Minister, Pablo Rodriguez, really jump ahead of a, law, of a policy development process that's been underway about how we should address these issues by saying, well, under our government, we are going to ensure that companies like Netflix contribute, and that means paying into these kinds of funds. And so effectively, they have flipped from where they were five years ago. Um, in a sense, the warning that Harper made five years ago took a while to come about, but one could argue that it has now come about with the party saying, yes, they are prepared to mandate these kinds of payments, institute what many call a Netflix tax. So is is the goal then of this and, and what the Liberals are now looking at, is the goal here to actually bring in millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to help to create content in Canada, to help the Canadian 
industry, maybe even to put some of the money just into the regular tax coffers? Or is this truly about trying to level the playing field for companies like Crave or Rogers or someone else who's in this business here in Canada competing with a giant? Right. No, I, well, I don't think it's about leveling the playing field with, with comparable online services like Crave because they don't pay contributions either. Um, they do collect sales taxes. And so there is an argument that the sales tax issue we would be would we would get a level playing field on sales tax if it was applied equally both to foreign services and domestic services and those domestic services already collect and remit but of course bear in mind when it comes to sales taxes the companies aren't paying sales tax they're merely just collecting from consumers and then remitting it on to the government so that it doesn't actually come out of their coffers in any real way the mandated contributions would though and would presumably result in increased costs for consumers as if those get passed along. And so I don't think it's about leveling the playing field. The argument is that it is to help support the industry. Though ironically, and you mentioned the commitment to spend, Netflix already does spend in Canada. And in fact, we saw a record amount of production, film and television production, take place in Canada last year. And so it's an industry that's already going gangbusters. And yet you get some groups who see an opportunity here, I think, an opportunity to leverage an election and, and the government to say, hey, we'd love to see even more money pumped into the system. And in this case, the money comes in and the, the company spending the money or at least contributing the money, like Netflix, doesn't even get a say necessarily in, in how it gets used. I mean, it, it's, it sounds on its face like a pretty easy political issue. We're going to be not, if the word isn't protectionist, but we are going to stand up for Canadians and for Canadian arts and Canadian, all this rest of this stuff. And, the you know, they're going to have to pay. I mean, it, it's a simple thing to make a... a, a logo or a, a saying about or something or put onto a campaign ad. I mean, it's a really obvious, easy one. Well, I mean, I think it may sell in some parts of the country. I think there's a sense that uh, in Quebec, for example, cultural in- issues have been sure. hot button political issues from time to time, and it might sell there. I'm not so sure that it sells elsewhere, though. I think Netflix is pretty popular uh, already in the idea that prices would go up or that the government mm. would use this as a system to try to mandate more more content creation in an industry that's already showing huge, huge success in terms of the film and television production taking place in Canada may not be all that popular. I mean, frankly, saying that you're going to bring in new taxes rarely is. Uh, yeah, I hadn't actually considered that. Yeah, of course, because always the companies, as we just talked in our last segment, companies always pass these things on to the consumer. So if they do end up getting nicked with a new tax, they're not going to absorb that in their bottom line. We'll end up paying for that. There's no free lunch. And we've had some groups who have called for contributions as high as 30% of revenues. And I'm not sure that Canadians would be all that happy if they knew that their Netflix bill could be going up by 30% as a result of this. Yeah, I, I, you're right. That would be highly unpopular. Let me, let me broaden this for a little bit, though, because I think there's a question, and, and I don't know if it's exactly the same, but th- there are other companies, digital companies, that operate out of the States or out of other countries, but that do business in Canada. And some of them very easy if you were going to apply some sort of tax. Amazon, for example, Amazon sends tangible physical items across the border. So if you want to apply a tax, you simply tax those things as they come. If you don't pay the tax, they don't get to enter the country. But how do you, how do you tax something? How do you do this when what you're trying to tax is digital binary numbers in something that you can't actually touch with your hand that you could send this, you could have Netflix set up anywhere and through the internet, people could access it here. How do you, how do you tax that? How do you get at it? 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. And again, to emphasize, we're we're talking about a range of different proposals, and so this is, in a sense, flipping back to the sales tax issue as opposed to the mandated contribution side. And on the sales tax issue, you're right. I mean, I think that there are real policy challenges, both of enforcement, but also of an efficient administration of the system. You know, if we basically said that anytime anything gets sold in Canada, digitally or otherwise, You've got to have a GST number and or an HST number, and you've got to collect and remit those sales taxes. For small foreign businesses that may do very little business in Canada, the costs of compliance far outweigh the amount of revenue that might be generated, and in cost to enforce that would be even higher. And so you might actually get many companies saying, we're not going to do business in Canada under that circumstance because you've, you've layered in all these additional administrative costs. We, again, are not paying the sales tax, but the costs of complying are very high. And so then Canadians are left with less choice when it comes to some of these online stores. So the challenge is, how do you come up with a system that remains efficient, that targets the large players who uh, do represent a sizable amount of tax revenue that arguably is being lost, while at the same time exempting some of the smaller players? I think that's a, in a that, that's where we are headed, but it requires a lot of joint policy development, not just with Canada, but with other countries as well. And I think that helps explain a little bit why there's been a bit of a delay in coming up with a global solution, though, as I say, many countries are, are working toward that. And I think the general sense is that once there are these global solutions developed, we'll see Canada hop on board. Because you really can't, I mean, the only way you can make a policy is if you have a way to enforce it or to, to make it work. And if any company, Netflix or otherwise, were to say, no, we're not going to cooperate, I guess your choice if you're the Canadian government is to try to figure out some way to block it from being able to be accessible here. There's not a government alive in the Western world that is going to want to be accused of being the one that shuts down Netflix or is involved in internet censorship. Yeah, I don't, well, I, we are seeing moves to block some kinds of content, but you're right. I, I don't think we'd see. But this blocking. is not this is not horrible stuff. You know, we wouldn't see blocking on for tax-related reasons at all. I think that's absolutely right. And and I think we should be clear: Netflix, uh, alongside many of these other large digital platforms, has never really said that they're not that they're against the taxes. They basically said it's up to the taxing authorities, the various governments, to decide. And whatever they decide, they'll comply with. And, and as I say, I don't think that should come as a surprise. There's the sense that somehow Netflix or similar companies would prefer to avoid collecting and remitting sales taxes. There's an administrative cost associated with it, but it's one that businesses deal with. And it, if you're a large player with large numbers of customers, it isn't particularly onerous. And at the end of the day, it isn't come out of, coming out of your pocket anyway. It's coming out of consumer pockets. That is a that is different, both from smaller companies that may have very little business, and so there are real costs involved, as well as different from the Netflix tax that the Liberal government seemed ready to run on, which is not about the sales taxes, which feels like a bit of a no-brainer, but rather the mandated contribution taxes coming at the very time that the industry is enjoying robust success. Let me ask you about one more foreign company, a U.S. company, that it's not exactly the same story. I don't even know if it's a similar story, but it's in the same vein, and that is Facebook for a long time. There have been questions because Facebook is a place that people are now getting their news. There's links to news sites, everything else. The, you, the, the liberals right now are going to give $600 million to selected media outlets to try and prop up the Canadian media. And a lot of the media people are saying, well, if you just taxed Facebook somehow for their use in Canada, 
it would level the playing field with the media. You may not have to do this. Why is Facebook able to dodge around this stuff, too, or dance around it? Well, I'm not sure that they're dodging anything on this either. They've also said to the extent to which there are sales taxes, they will collect and remit those. The debate around the media side with companies like Facebook has come down to two things. One, we've seen some in the Canadian media argue that the government should stop advertising on Facebook. So they're saying stop putting your money into foreign platforms for advertising purposes. I think to which the government would say, we advertise to try to have an impact in terms of reaching Canadians. And if Canadians are on Facebook, then really for our advertising to, to do what it's intended to do, we need to go where Canadians are, um, not to go where they aren't and not having much of an impact. In addition, there's an argument that there is a tax deductibility for advertising that takes place on foreign services that isn't available, that, or they argue that ought not to be available, uh, because they say if you take away that tax deductibility, it will make advertising on Facebook or through Google more expensive. Um, and then people will be more like advertisers will be more likely to use Canadian services. I think it's a weak argument for at least a couple of reasons. One, again, this this notion that people advertise because the advertising is cheaper, I think, runs counter to how many advertisers think. They want to be they want effective advertising, not necessarily cheap advertising. And so, if the audiences are on these online platforms, that's where they're going to go. And removing tax deductibility will increase the cost of advertising, but it won't necessarily change the habits in a significant way. And the other thing to bear in mind is that many of the Canadian media companies use these same platforms for advertising purposes. They use YouTube, for example, to throw up videos and throw ads on that. And so how do we begin to distinguish between advertising that someone is doing, let's say, through the Globe and Mail or through the CBC on YouTube as opposed to pure YouTube or pure Google or pure Facebook advertising? It's, it's both complicated and, I think, pretty ineffective. And indeed, that's precisely what Canada Revenue Agency or officials within the government, when they were asked about this as a committee, said they've looked carefully at it. And frankly, it is, it's a proposed solution that just doesn't work all that well. I'm sure that, uh, I, I don't know when you started getting into the internet law and all this kind of thing. I, I am positive that once upon a time, it probably thought, ah, get into internet law, this is going to be reasonably simple, not all that. It, it is like every single thing you talk about, there are so many nuances, so many twists, so many ways that you, you're heading down one path and suddenly go, yeah, but it is, it, it, it's understandable how these things get to be almost impossible to navigate your way through. Well, they're de- you're right. They're definitely increasingly complicated and and you know i think people are often of course looking for simple solutions i mean that's 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 natural enough but these are areas that it that it's it's often difficult to find that and once you get into the nuance and the granularity of how the services work why choices are made in different ways some of those pol- some of the what seem like easy policy prescriptions often turn out to be not not worth all that much Michael Geist, law professor at the University of Ottawa and member of the Center for Law, Technology and Society. Michael, always appreciate it. Thanks for the time. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, He's got a piece, by the way, if you want more on this one, at the Globe and Mail, Election 2019, Return of the Netflix Tax Debate. Great point, though. The Liberals didn't want this. Now they do want it. But does anybody want to pay more for Netflix? Are we getting anywhere if you're losing the people? It, it It is monstrously complicated which of course makes it one of those things that probably we'll be debating in election 2077 still or something. We'll all long be dead, but they'll still be talking about it. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a curious story. At least I think it is somewhat curious as I was reading this. It seems that people will be judging you based entirely on your name. It's true. Now, they're not going to do it on purpose. They're not going to be mean, but there is something about the sound of your name, the audible, the way the word is made up that creates some impression on them before they even know anything about you. It seems that there is a trigger in your brain that will give them some idea of who you are, what your personality is, even before you've spoken. It's a fascinating thing. It's a little confusing. It's definitely a little curious, as I say. I want to bring in David Sadu from the University of Calgary, who is one of the people behind this study. David, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. So if I understand this correctly, looking at this, certain sounds and certain combinations of sounds, when it's attached to a name, makes us have an impression, makes us think of certain things, which gives us a sense even before we've met you, who you are. Is that too simple? No, that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, so it comes out of this finding, it's been around for maybe 100 years now, yeah, that people will associate certain things with a word based on the way it sounds. The classic example is if you imagine an alien language, and there's two words, one's Maluma, one's Tikiti, and one of them means round, one of them means jagged. Which one would you think is which? And I would, I would yeah. say the Maluma sounds softer and more, you see, your mouth moves more round when you say it, so I would say that's round. Yeah, exactly. And that's what most people around the world say, so that kind of suggests that something about these sounds kind of evokes certain properties, like roundness or softness, like you said. And this has been shown for, for size, for brightness, for quickness. We were curious if this will also apply to personality traits. So basically, we got together a set of names that had these softer sounds in them. So like Molly or Noel or Noel, for example. And then a set of names that had harsher sounds in them, like Patrick or Kirk or Kate. So both genders. And basically, we gave participants the name. And we said, imagine this belonged to someone you've never known. Here are some personality traits which ones do you think would apply to the person. And in general, what we found is that with these softer names, people will assume that they're nicer, more emotional, a bit harder working, and that with these harsher names, people will assume that they're more extroverted. And it's a fascinating thing. Does it apply? And I don't know if your study looked at this. Does this apply across the age spectrum? And and what I mean by that is by the time you're 30 or 40 or 50, you have made certain associations with people in your life or with things in your life. Is this something that we've created these brain associations? Or if you're a five-year-old and don't have much life experience, do you do the same thing? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, so a couple, couple parts to that. Um, we just tested typical undergrads who are on average, you know, around 20 years old. So we can't really say that from our study. What we did do is we also asked each person how familiar they are with each name. So we got them to rate the names for personalities and then also said, you know, from one to five, how familiar are you with the same? Do you have a parent with the same, for example? And we found their familiarity with the names didn't affect things. So even if it's your the name of your parent, let's say, versus a name you have no association with, it seems to be the same sort of effect. Now that Maluma Tikiti effect I talked about earlier, that's been tested in different ages and it seems to reliably show up around one, one years old. Um, we're currently doing a study where we're testing kids that are even younger going from four months to 12 months to kind of see when it actually appears. Um, but yeah, it seems like it reliably pops up around one, 
in terms of shape associations, but we're not sure in terms of personality associations. Something you just said there shocks me, though, and that is that there's not a connection necessarily, because I would think that if if you had if you had dated someone named Bethany, that that you know the mm-hmm. sound of that name, if it was a good relationship, you'd feel good about the sound of that name. If it was a bad relationship, you would feel like that's got a negative connotation. You're saying that's not necessarily the case. Not necessarily the case in the aggregate. So overall, more familiarity doesn't really change the effect. I'm sure if it's a really, really salient name, that's, that's going to bring, bring about associations. Um, but I guess in general, it's, it's not, a, not an effect in general. But at the extremes, probably you're going to find some effect of existing associations. So if you meet someone named Adolf, you're probably going to have <laughs> some sort of reaction regardless of whether the name was soft or harsh. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And that's that's impossible to avoid because we do over our life create, as I say, these connections that one thing necessarily means something to us. It, it, would it be similar in a sense to, you know, when you're 60 years old, people will tell you or 70, they'll hear a song that played during their high school prom and it still immediately brings back a, a feeling or a smell or something. It's the same thing, kind of. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, this reminded me that in the paper we also did in one study was to create names, to try and get around this issue that you're talking about, that, of course, you're going to have these existing associations. So we basically made up names that still have these same properties. Um, and we ran the same experiment, and we, we got the same effect, even a little bit stronger, actually, which does suggest that existing associations might attenuate the effect a little bit. So if we believe that hearing a name, so the name causes us to feel something or to have some sort of sense of what the person is going to be like, can we do the opposite? We hear about, like many parents have a baby name picked out long before their kid is born, but others say, you know what, I've got to see my baby before I can know that they look like a Samuel or like a Christina or like a whatever. Do you think there's anything to that? Do you think people can determine that ahead of time and apply a proper name that they think fits? Oh, that's interesting. Um, my instinct would be to say no, um, partly because what we also did in this paper was we looked to see if these associations actually did exist in the real world. So we tested about a thousand people and we got them to fill out a personality inventory and got their names. And we found that these associations that people seem to have these first impressions aren't actually accurate. So it doesn't seem like Noel is going to be kinder than Kate, or that Kate's going to be more outgoing. It's just sort of this first impression, but these people aren't actually walking around with these associations. But, but you could then, by this, uh, you could quite unintentionally, as a young parent, have a significant impact on your child's future hiring, their future opportunities, by choosing, for, for lack of a better term, the wrong name for them. Potentially, yeah, and that's actually something we're, we're thinking of looking at next. Or the right of name. Course, this, or the right name. Or the right name, hopefully, yeah. Um, so in this study, of course, people just got a name, so very little other information to go off of. So you could say we kind of are forcing them to take the name into account. But what we're thinking about doing in a future study is adding some extra information. So giving people, say, a video of a conversation with a person, and they just watch this video of this person talking. Her name's either Noel or, you know, tell the other people her name's Kate and see how that changes impressions of the person. Um, and that kind of gets at what you're talking about. Maybe this does actually have these real world implications. Uh, this may be way too off track and way too deep too, but do you think people become the personality that fits their name? Yeah. Um, 
Because if so many people, if we're making such connections, there must be certain people Mm. that we have learned over time have fit that name, therefore we create that association. But yeah, I mean, so there was a neat study that came out a couple years ago that people start looking like their names, so that everyone has an idea of what a Daniel should look like, and you kind of, if your name is Daniel, you kind of change your appearance a little bit. So we were curious if that might happen with personality, but when we tested people, it didn't seem like their personalities actually matched their names. So that was just that that not, not doesn't quite happen. Where it might happen is with nicknames. So um, that's another ah. thing we're interested in looking at because with a nickname, it's kind of applied to a person whose personality you do know. You know, it, their personality is also developed. So potentially, that's that's where you see it in association like that. But that's something we're going to look into. But a nickname also is generally, I mean, sometimes it's just a tweak on their name, but often a nickname is something to do with their personality. So that would make a ton of sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That would make a ton of sense. All right, so let me do a test with you here. You're the expert on this one. Let me just throw out three or four names, and based on how this would work, using what you've learned from your study, what would the average person think of? Let me give you a few names here. Let's say uh, let's say you met someone named Amy. Based on the study, what would people associate with someone named Amy? Yeah, they would say that she's very agreeable, so you know, very nice, very warm, kind, that sort of thing probably more emotional than average. Um, isn't necessarily a negative thing, but just it feels, feels emotion a bit stronger. And then probably a bit more diligent in terms of being hardworking and that sort of thing, being more organized than average. And why? What, what, what was it in that name that gave you that breakdown? So it was that, that sound, the must sound. So that's called a sonorant. That's sort of this one group of phonemes that we looked at, these softer sounds, and that's what's associated with those kinds of sounds. Okay, let's go to another one that has a harder vowel in it. David. <laughs> yeah. A harder so, consonant, pardon me, David. Yeah, so David is actually somewhere in the middle. That that does sound called a voice stop. It's somewhere in between these two extremes of a t and a m, for example. So I, people probably wouldn't have too strong of an association to that name based off this, this sort of thing. Jennifer. That's another softer name. So people would, again, probably think that she's very nice, very kind, a bit more emotional than average, and a bit more organized than average. All right, here's one. And this this gets me to my next question. We only have a couple minutes left, but this gets me to my next question. What if you had a name like Boris? And the reason I asked that one in particular, because now we're getting into something that for many of us would be not necessarily from our country. It's from a different part of the world, which also may bring in different kind of thoughts that we have. But if you had the name Boris... Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's got that bus sound, which sort of goes along with these sonorants, so it's probably going to be in the same sort of a category as, as an Amy or a Jennifer, but I think what you said is totally true, that a name is going to come along with other things, like um, cultural associations and that sort of thing, so... So that's going to also affect the impression of a name like Boris. Because there are certain countries, certain places in the world, uh, you know, Croatian names, Serbian names, like very Russian names, that as soon as you hear them, you say, oh, I know what part of the world that's from. And that could have an impact, even without necessarily knowing all the sounds, the immediate impact, the connection. Oh, I think of Serbians, I think of Russians, I think of Germans, I think of Asians as you fill in the blank and therefore it's going to make the name have a meaning. Absolutely. And you can also have a, um, an effect where certain names from certain countries tend to have these harsher or these rounder sounds. That could be an interesting interesting thing as well there. Um, you know, the funny thing, we're going to let you go, but 
the the irony of this is I don't think any no one's doing this on purpose, right? No one is sitting down saying, "Oh, I heard your name is Sally, therefore I've decided you are this." But it's it's unconscious right. that this is going on in our heads. Yeah, these kinds of associations they do seem to be pretty unconscious. They they affect um, again not with personality, but on these previous studies with size and shape, they affect responses very early on. You know, responses that are made in less than a second. So. These are kinds of these automatic, implicit associations that these sounds conjure. So, yeah, definitely not nothing deliberate. Um, but I'm sure if someone sat down and wanted to think about it, they could kind of arrive at the same conclusions. But these things definitely do pop up implicitly as well. But we would blanch, and we do blanch most people, at things like racial profiling. This is essentially a name profiling, even though we're not trying to do it. Yeah, I guess I've never thought of it that way. Um it's true. So again, I guess the caveat with all this is that these were tasks that were very constrained, just giving people a name and isolation. So probably in real life, when you have more to go off of, the name's going to play less of a role. So less profiling in the real world, I guess. David, do you have kids? I don't know. Okay. When the day comes or if the day comes that <laughs> you ever do, and now that you know what you know, if you had a boy or if you had a girl, either side, give me the two answers. What would be the primo prime best possible name that generated the best response that will get your kid hired at every single job they apply for then based on your study? What would be the ideal name for a boy and for a girl? <laughs> I wonder if I'm going to affect you know baby names in 2020 by saying this. Um, I don't know. You know, we, we made up a couple of names and some of those sounded kind of funny, so... Maybe let's go with, um, uh, what is this? let me just take a look at this list here. I like Nysel. That was a name that we, we sort of made up. Um, Nysel? Nysel, yeah. Is that a and boy or a girl? That would be a boy. I think people thought that that was a boy. Yeah, okay. we forgot that, that rating. And then um, another one we got was Noadja, which I thought sounded kind of interesting. So maybe I'd just go with two completely invented names when I... When I have kids. Why not? And the only downside to that would be that that child forever and ever would have to spell that name wherever they went. But you know what? If it, if it gets you into <laughs> yeah, every exactly. university and hired at every job, then uh, sounds like a good trade-off. Uh, listen, really appreciate the time. David Sadu from the University of Calgary. Go read if you can find it online, and you will. Really, really interesting story. Really interesting study. David, thanks for doing this today. Thanks very much. Nice to chat with you. I want to bring Will into the conversation now. Because we only have a couple minutes left, but you know, he's talking about what are the best names, what are the worst names. Let me tell you the worst names. There was a list that was gathered of the worst. Now, this is not really to do with the same thing he talked about, but the worst names that have been registered on birth certificates of baby names. Fredward. That's my suggestion. Fredward? I, I, I like swore, Squidward? Well, yeah. I swore when I was 15 I was going to name my kid Fredward. Well, I can't go through the whole list because we just don't have enough time, but there are some beauties on here that I don't know. People, apparently there are people in the world who give birth and then immediately go back on crystal meth <laughs> while coming up with the name. Calling your daughter Love Child Ermengard. That's oh. her name. Love Child Ermengard. Is Love Child, is, are there hyphens involved? Uh, yes. Okay, good. Uh, Beverly. Not Beverly, Beverly. Just to make sure it's confusing for everyone. Little Sweet Meat. Oh, oh you, you have brought up Little Sweet Meat <laughs> Little before. Sweet Meat. Um, how about Appaloosa? How about naming your daughter after a horse? Or, my, or one, of my per, one of my real favorites here, uh, Melanomia. 
Ooh. I mean, it, it sounds beautiful. It sounds... Except that it sounds very much like a skin cancer. It does. It it, it does. However, I am thinking now what, what, uh, what they said in the interview there. Maybe some of these names might work in the long run. I don't know. Vajonica. Uh-oh. That just sounds rude in ways that we're not going to discuss on the air. Let your imagination run wild. I, if you're, if you call your kid Vajonica, you, uh, okay. I, I love this one. Durfla. <laughs> and it's like, okay, why did you call your daughter Durfla? Well, because they really love their uncle Alfred, but it was a girl. So they did it backwards. Durfla. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, felony. P-H-E-L-O-N-Y. Felony. Moxie Crime Fighter, Abstinence, Fifi Trixie Bell. These are real names. Olive Garden. Okay, boys. I think Felony and Moxie Crime Fighter ought to team up and have a comic. <laughs> Worst names for boys. Uh, Jihad. Ooh. Clitus. Oh. Yeah. Again, what are you possibly doing to your son? Is that, did they misspell Cletus or want to uh, base it on that? Okay. Uh, Thermoply. <laughs> I thought, that's something you buy off late night television. Um, a couple more here. Uh, uh, audio science. Okay, that's cool. Ob- Is that one of Devo's kids? Obamanique. I kind of like that one. Um, uh, Your Majesty. <laughs> oh, yes, I've heard that Your one. Your Majesty. And the one that was actually turned down, thankfully, because who would have ever done Adolf Hitler. Yeah, that one gets turned who down. Who goes to the... Sure. Who goes... They say, oh, it's a beautiful boy. What's his name? Adolf Hitler. Ah, okay. Nice knowing you. See you later. Other nurse, can you please come in and handle these people? Yeah. Hey, you know, you brought up Nicolas Cage yesterday uh, and uh, his story of having to return a dinosaur skull and stuff. Nick has just, he has wonderful stories. Um, But his kid is named Kal-El. Kal-El. Well, here's one. Superman's original name. Mercury Constellation Star Cruiser is one boy's name. Yo, isn't, um, who named their kid something like, uh, uh, pilot control or pilot master? Jason Lee, the guy from My Name is Earl, named his kid something close to that. Well, there was also, as we closed, there was a boy named Pilot Inspector that was on the list. That's it. That's Jason Jason Lee's kid. Yeah, Pilot Inspector. Pilot Inspector. All right. Uh, I don't know if those are names that filling in with what was said before, if those are going to be good names or bad names, but they're names. They are names. Choose wisely. They're your child. Back after this. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was reading a story in The Guardian this week, the British, English, European newspaper. And some of you are going to hear this and go, huh. And some of you are going to hear this and go, huh. But you're going to have a response. I'm guaranteeing you're going to be thinking something when you hear this. Because the story is about people who do not bathe. They have decided, they're not trying to blast our nostrils. It's not about making a statement. They have looked into this, presumably. They have studied it, presumably, and they have decided that it is a healthier option in our society, that we are too clean, which sounds like a bit of an oxymoron, but that we're too clean, that it's not healthy to bathe, to put use as many chemicals, to use as much soap and product and colors and everything else. So they go the opposite way. And here's the kicker to this thing, because my first reaction when I hear this story, and I'm guessing most people, truthfully, if you were being honest, your first reaction when you hear about this is you go, ooh, they got a stink. Well, the people in this story, and my next guest will find out if she shares the same view, but to a person in this story, and they talk to a number of people, they all say, no, 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 
Like misnomer, misunderstanding. We don't all stink. We're not all walking around as BO factories. We don't smell at all because your body takes care of itself. I want to bring in Jackie Hong, who is a reporter with the Yukon News. She was also mentioned in this story. She is living this life. It's a fascinating story. Jackie, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I'm going to ask you some questions right off the top, and I, I I was thinking about this beforehand. I don't know how these questions can't be a little bit personal, so I apologize. I hope they're not uh, making you uncomfortable. But, I mean, according to this, so you are someone who, how do you describe it? Do you not bathe or do you not use soap? Or what, what's the description of what you do or don't do? So I'm one of the people that doesn't use soap. Okay. I still bathe. <laughs> Okay, and but some people in this story, and you've, I'm sure you've read the story, you were quoted in it, don't bathe, don't even bathe. They don't unless they've fallen into a puddle of mud or something. They just go along with what they are. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, that's definitely not what I do. But uh, there are folks out there who don't shower and don't take baths. You don't use soap. You don't use shampoo. You don't use products at all when you're when you're bathing. So I don't use soap uh, or body wash or anything like that, but I do still use shampoo. Okay. So why? What What was the thought behind this? Because I think you understand, I'm sure you understand that this is not, in North America anyway, the societal norm. So why did you make this decision? So I made this decision back in 2010 when I was still in high school. I had an artist in residence uh, who just hung out at my school and I would be in a studio quite a bit. And one day he mentioned while we were chatting that he hadn't used soap in 20 years. So my first reaction was, ew, gross, kind of like the ugh you mentioned <laughs> at the top. But he instantly came back with, well, do I smell? And he didn't. And that's what triggered it all for me. So up until that point, you had never, obviously, if, if, you, had not, if you had to ask, I think that was your answer even before he asked that question. If he stunk, you would have known it right away. He didn't. Absolutely, yeah. And I think a lot of people, when they find out that I don't use soap, have that same reaction. And I give them the same response. If I hadn't told you, you wouldn't know because it's not like I'm filling every room I enter with my ungodly stuff. (laughs) And so when you heard that then from him, uh, you can still hear that from someone. It doesn't make you want to go and do that. What was it then that made you decide, you know what, I'm going to follow that same thing? couple of things, I guess. So I was an impressionable teenager and I thought, well, if it works for this person that I think is really cool, then why won't it work for me? And also on a more practical side, um, it just meant that I didn't have to spend money on soap or body wash or face wash or all those other things. Which can add up. There's no, there's no question. If you live in a house with people who use it, it, it costs money. Mm-hmm. Now, okay. So here's where this thing gets... I think where a lot of people, their sort of their antenna goes up because I've been around people who haven't bathed in a while. I'm sure you have too, besides this, uh, they stink. If you're around someone who's got BO, I had to take an airline flight, a flight on a plane one time sitting next to someone who absolutely reeked Jackie. And I'm trying to figure out then they didn't obviously bathe. They didn't use product either, at least not recently. So how do you go from, what's the difference between what they're doing and what you're doing? So the reason I've stuck with this is because I didn't notice any negative effects. Like I started this when I was 16 and if there was any sort of transition period where I stunk, I definitely would not have (laughs) kept going with it. Um, And 
personally, I don't think it's for everyone. I think if you, for example, if you have a skin condition or some other sort of medical issue, maybe going soap free or going without bathing won't work out for you. It's all about, you know, trying it out, seeing it works and obviously consulting with your dermatologist and all that kind of good stuff. Because like you said, I've definitely been on the bus sitting next to someone and I'm like, oh man, I need to open a window. Yeah. You, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody knows what we're talking about. We've all experienced that. Mm-hmm. Is there any, and now I'm not doubting you, but is there any chance that you've just grown used to what, you know, that you, I don't know how to ask this without sounding insulting, but is there any <laughs> chance that you do smell and you've just grown used to it so you don't notice it anymore? So funny story, I, I actually wrote about not using soap originally back in 2017 uh, when I was working at the Toronto Star. And when I was working on the story, I went up and straight up asked a bunch of my colleagues, hey guys, my feelings won't be hurt. Do I smell? And everyone was like, no. <laughs> um, and again, I started this in high school, right? And Which is a risky school, time to do it. Yeah. I feel high school kids, especially exactly. teens, they can be mean and they're not going to hold back. And exactly. Think, again, if there was any negative effects, I definitely would have stuck with it because who wants to be the stinky girl in high school, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. No, you're a hundred percent. On the flip side, we are a pretty polite people. I'm not sure... Uh, during the commercial break before we came in, Will, who's on the other side of the glass here, who's operating the show today, I said, you know, Will, if you walked into the station day after day and you just reeked, I know you well enough that I would tell you you stink, but I don't know how many people who don't know someone are just going to go up to them and go, um, by the way, you reek. I, 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 I don't know that we would do that in our, cult, in our country. Mm-hmm. So you run the risk. You run the risk that you hope there's someone who, if you are one of those people who can't get away with it like you can, there's someone who's close enough to you who will save you from yourself. Yeah. I, and I think, <laughs> although we might not go up to a stranger and be like, hey man, you really need to put on some deodorant. <laughs> I think you can kind of tell just based on people's reaction. <laughs> you know, the wrinkled noses or the, the wide birth you get on the bus. Yeah. The wide birth. Yeah. Uh, again, weird question, but I'm wondering if there is, does it take some time? Because one of the things that I'm reading in this story is that people have microbiomes and stuff on their skin. And I'm wondering if, do many of the people who do this smell at first and then their body achieves some sort of balance and begins to sort itself out so you don't have a smell? For me personally, uh, again, I didn't really notice any transition period. I just, the only thing I noticed is that I went from smelling like Hawaiian breeze or Irish springs to not really having a smell at all. Unless unless you're straight up sniffing my arm, then we obviously all have a, a natural scent. But it's not like I was smelling sweaty or stinky or anything like that after I stopped using soap. And how many people are coming up, Jackie, and just smelling your arm? Not very many. Not very many. Uh, <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> yeah. But is it socially acceptable for you to tell people this? Like when you do tell someone, if it ever comes up, and I'm sure this is not your opening line when you meet someone for the first day, hi, I'm Jackie and I don't bathe. But I, I mean, if you if it does come up in conversation, what is the response you get from most people? I think the response is pretty similar to what I gave the artist back when, in high school. Um because it definitely is ingrained in our culture. And I definitely grew up like this too, where, you know, you have to use soap to get clean, like scrub up in the shower. Uh, and a lot of people, there is that initial shock or surprise. But I think, especially if I'm talking to people face to face, the next question is, why? 
it's just an honest curiosity about why I would choose to do this. And when it's that sort of nice reaction, I'm happy to talk and explain and uh, discuss in detail my personal hygiene habits. Well, because we have a society that is very, very um, nose smell sensitive. I mean, we really do. It is, it's, it's, I mean, how many commercials, if you watch an hour of TV at night, I guarantee you that at least one or two of those are going to be for something to do with smell, shampoo, body wash, soap, something. Like it, it is something that we are really, really focused on in this society is making sure you smell okay. Mm-hmm. So one of the really interesting things I found out when I was doing my original article back in 2017 is I like to call it a bit of a psychological hangover that we have with soap and cleanliness because up until fairly recently, we did live in this dirty infected sort of world, you know, where pathogens and bacteria and all these unpleasant viruses were just floating around. And you did need to bathe. You did need that soap to scrub off and get clean to make sure you didn't get sick and die. But thanks to the miracles of vaccines and modern medicine and um, public health works, we're definitely living in a more sanitary, safe time where we don't need that intense level of scrubbing and soap and cleaning to maintain good health and maintain good hygiene. But because of that history, I think society is still caught up on that idea of you need soap to be hygienic. It's also very interesting. We had a uh, an allergist who was on the show last week or the week before, and it was, un- I mean, we hadn't planned it to be connected to this, but we were talking about why do so many people these days, seemingly everybody, all the kids now have allergies. I mean, when I was in high school, Jackie, maybe when you were too, or elementary school, I mean, we, <laughs> we brought peanut butter sandwiches to school and it was okay. And now, heavens, if you brought a peanut butter sandwich to school, there would be a hazmat team and the school would be evacuated because some kid is going to have, go into anaphylactic shock and die. And I mean, I'm not really, I'm being ridiculous, but not ri- too ridiculous. I mean, it really, there are kids who are so allergic now. And his response was he really believed that one of the causes was that we are being too clean, that we're washing our kids too much and that these, again, these microbiomes, these germs, these things, kids aren't developing any kind of resistance to them because we're taking them off their body as fast as they arrive. Mm -hmm. Which means, I don't know if he was suggesting that all adults should go down this path. I don't know if you're suggesting all adults should go down this path, but certainly with kids, we are cleaning them too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I was, Again, when I was researching the original article, um, I did also come across that. I was speaking to a professor at the University of Chicago who specializes in microbiomes, and he was saying that um, some parents now, they're bathing their babies way too much because they're thinking, oh, to keep the baby healthy, I need to keep the baby clean. But what they're doing is actually stripping away those natural protections. And I think for a lot of people, when you say the word bacteria, again, you think of death, disease, illness, all this gross stuff. But our bodies in and on them actually have a ton of beneficial bacteria that maybe we shouldn't be annihilating all the time. And I'd like to think we're becoming more aware of that as a society because, for example, um, I think there's been a lot of discussions about gut microbiome. Yes. And you can go to the grocery store and buy yogurt that's advertised as probiotics. Um, But we're still coming around to the realization that some bacteria is good. It's not all necessarily scary. We don't need to kill them all off. Is there... now? 
just before we got a couple of minutes left here, is there not though some, there's a lot of soap out there that is completely natural. So we don't have to be putting chemicals or dyes or perfumes or whatever onto our skin. Is that something that, um, and I don't know how many other people like in this, do you call it a community? I mean, I don't know. Do you, the, the people who don't, do you guys, do you guys, I, I'm sure you're not in some sort of little chat room all talking about not bathing <laughs> together, but I mean, it, surely there, if you have all natural soaps, that would get around some of the concerns that some of the people would have about chemicals and dyes and those kind of things. Well, actually we have a convention every time there's a full moon. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> um, some will um, believe you. Um, but no, but it, there is, there are natural ingredients. Is it, is that something that you would ever think of or is it just, well, I don't need it, so I'm not going to bother? For me, it's definitely the latter. I Soap doesn't do anything for me and I don't particularly feel the need to smell like, again, Irish Springs or coconut mango or whatever. So why would I spend my money on something I don't need and doesn't really do anything for me. Mm, coconut mango. Mm, making me think of a pina colada here. <laughs> Thirsty. But, but the, the, the irony of this whole thing is, and I don't know if you've seen this, I'm sure you have, because I'm sure you've done some reading, is there does seem to be an industry being built up around the no soap, no shampoo, no bathing crowd, which is, to me, it's very ironic. The people who are trying to get away from this, there's now a whole industry of, well, we're not making soap and we're not making shampoo. It's all natural stuff that you can put on your body to deal with this. And it seems like you're stepping out of one industry, even though that's not the reason why you're doing it. And another industry is following you one way or another, they're going to try and get your money from you. Yeah. I saw that in the Guardian article too. And personally, it's not a thing for me, but uh, the capitalism machine never fails to amaze. Indeed. If you, uh, before I let you go, if you, I don't know if you do, but if you ever had a kid, would this be something that you, having done this now, would this be something you'd be comfortable now with a child to saying, you know what, until there's some reason I'm going to go with not bathing, not soap, not shampoo. Mm-hmm. I feel personally I would with, if, sorry, with consultation with a doctor or a dermatologist because, again, everyone's skin is different and maybe what works for me won't work for you or won't work for my theoretical child. So it's always a good idea to check in with a professional who does know what's going on. Um, But yeah, definitely something I would be comfortable with if I should have a kid to not be scrubbing them all the time. It's, it, yeah, you know what, because even if, even if we look, don't do something for ourselves, I think a lot of people get a little nervous, which, you know, again, goes back to the allergies and everything. We tend to overreact when we have kids and uh, maybe do things that even we don't want to do with ourselves. Uh, Jackie Hong from the Yukon News, really appreciate you taking the time and thank you for being so forthright. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. That's, uh, look, brave of her to do that. Not that, again, I mean, from what she says, there's no... You know, Jackie's not walking around the Yukon and suddenly having black bears following her because of her scent. That's not the case. And, and yet I know there's still a lot of people listening saying, okay, so Jackie is unique. Jackie is that rare exception. I couldn't do that. I'm telling you, I, I don't, I don't believe that I could get away with this unless there is some magical bodily thing that happens a week or two weeks after you stop using soap or stop, unless there's something that germs and stuff happens that your body reverts to some sort of sense of balance. 
I, I know myself, if I'm up at the cottage and you know, the cottage is where you, you kick back, you're not, you know, you know, you're going out early. To, I'm going out early in the morning, like 5am I'm on the lake to go fishing. I'm not spending all day primping and everything. And, and I know that if I go out, if I sleep over, sleep the night and then I'm on the boat by 5am by noon, I'm thinking, yeah, I need a shower. I need a shower. I don't want to be around people because I need a shower. I, if I was at the cottage and I didn't bathe for one week, I can tell you that my wife would be out in the boat before I ever got there. She would flee for her safety. I just can't imagine saying, I'm going to go into work every day, all day and not bathe. And it's going to be peachy keen. It's going to be fine. I don't know. Let me bring Will in for a second. We got a minute here. Would you? Like, I was just going to dare you to, Scott. <laughs> I'm not. No, no. Don't dare me to do that one. There's other things you can dare me to do. I don't want to do the <laughs> riot patrol <laughs> gas bomb in here. And I don't mean gas bomb, but I mean like it's. Yeah. It's it, I d- the stank challenge. He, I just don't think that most people could get away with this. I think maybe there are some people whose bodies just respond and they can do it. I don't think everybody, I don't know, but I don't think everybody could. You know what? I'd be willing to bet that, as you say, after a certain amount of time, maybe everyone's body does find a balance. I could see that. I personally cannot see myself ever uh, having the willpower <laughs> to do that. I'm an incredibly stubborn person when I want to be. I don't think I could could test this out unless you marooned me on an island somewhere. And, and I, we got to go, but I can tell you that I have worked before with people who I don't think they were doing it as a lifestyle like this. They just didn't avail themselves of the shower facilities as often as others. It was horrible. It was horrible. There is, and, and that time I had to go on the plane, I was sitting next to somebody who honestly smelled like he was the superintendent at a BO factory. And it's just unpleasant. If you're going to do this, that's fine. Research it, look into it, go up north, do a test drive when you're all alone by yourself. But man, if you're going to do this, you'd better be sure that you are not about to blast everyone else out because, ugh, ugh, ugh. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.